Well, good morning, everyone. We are in 1 Corinthians again, kind of back and forth between Revelation and 1 Corinthians. And two weeks ago, we went through 1 Corinthians, and we had planned to go through, I had planned to go through 1 Corinthians 1, 1 through 17, and we made it through the first three verses. So, if you have your handout from last week, pull it out. We're going to keep going through it. If you weren't here two weeks ago, or you didn't bring your hand out, I have extras, and Matt is going to help get those around to people. So raise your hand if you don't have a handout from last week, which I'm guessing is going to be a few of you. All right. It may or may not make it around. I don't know if I have enough copies, but uh, we'll, be, we'll be picking up in verse 4, and then after that, we're going to jump into trying to go through the rest of chapter 1. As with previously, Matt, I'll take half of those and get them over on the other side too. As with previously, please, please, please stop and ask me questions as we go. We'd love to have this to be a time where you can ask the questions that are on your mind as you have them, and we can stop and talk about them. We have a couple of kind of planned pullover spots where we'll stop and talk about um, a couple of things discussed together, but a really a lot of that discussion time is going to be dictated by you guys raising a hand, asking for some clarification, and we'll dig into it together. So keep your hand raised if you don't have a sheet yet, and are there extras over there? If so, we might need a few more over there. So on your handout, I think it's page two or three, where we're going to be picking up with Paul's gratitude in verse four. This is First Corinthians chapter one, verse four. Just by brief way of reminder, I'm going to ask a couple questions and see if you guys remember what we talked about two weeks ago. Um, let me see question here. Um, what made uh, Corinth, the city of Corinth, geographically so significant in the Mediterranean region? What were some things that made it so significant? Shout them out. Micah. Ports. ports, yes. Two ports on either side of the peninsula. Great. What else? It was on a hill, yeah, right next to a highly defensible position, so it was strategic for merchant purposes or economic purposes and military purposes. Any other significant factors that play into the context of the church in Corinth? Big religious center. Big religious center, yeah, temples everywhere. What do you, you guys remember with the, the ratio between or the, how, much, how many times bigger Corinth was than Athens at the time of the first century? eight times bigger. By conservative estimates, this was eight times bigger than Athens. So really big city at the time. But yeah, a couple other factors we could jump into, but I'd rather just dive into the text this morning and, uh, and, and plow into what we have for this morning. So we're going to be in 1 Corinthians. I will read the first three verses just as a reminder, and then we'll read through verse 17, talk about that a bit, and then jump into the second half of chapter 1. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 1. Paul, called as an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God, to Sos- and Sosthenes, our brother, to the church of God which is at Corinth, to those who have been sanctified in Christ Jesus, called as saints, with all who in every place call on the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, their Lord and ours. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God always concerning you for the grace of God which was given you in Christ Jesus, that in everything you were enriched in him, in all word and all knowledge, 
even as the witness about Christ was confirmed in you, so that you are not lacking any gift, eagerly awaiting the revelation of our Lord Jesus Christ, who will also confirm you to the end, beyond reproach in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is faithful through whom you were called into fellowship with his Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. Now I exhort you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you all agree and that there be no divisions among you, but that you, may, that, but that you be made complete in the same mind and in the same judgment. For I have been informed concerning you, my brothers, by Chloe's people, that there are quarrels among you. Now I mean this, that each one of you is saying, I am of Paul, and I am of Apollos, and I of Cephas, and I of Christ. Has Christ been divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Or were you baptized into the name of Paul? I thank God that I baptized none of you except Crispus and Gaius, so that no one would say you were baptized into my name. Now I did baptize also the household of Stephanus. Beyond that, I don't know whether I baptized any other. For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to proclaim the gospel, not in wisdom or word, so that the cross of Christ will not be made empty. Verse 4 picks up and talks about Paul's gratitude. When we look at this letter, this letter has a lot of corrections to be made, a lot of, a lot of things that Paul is correcting the church in Corinth for, but he nevertheless starts with gratitude. First thing to note is that the direction of thanks and praise is to God. The direction is to God. Notice, I thank my God. And then the duration, I thank my God always concerning you. The duration of thanks and praise is constant. I thank my God always concerning you for the grace of God which was given you in Christ. The reason for thanks and praise, the grace of God. The grace of God. The grace of God which was given in Jesus, past justification. The grace of God which enriched them in Christ such that they currently experience every spiritual gift. This is present sanctification. And this is remarkable, it, remarkable even to see how this connects with our sermon we just heard from Pastor Brett in first service about how Hezekiah had received a gift in his case, a gift of an extended life, and it produced pride rather than humility. The same thing happened in Corinth. They, were, they had been enriched corporately with every spiritual gift, and it had produced, rather than humility, pride. Verse 5, that in everything you were enriched in him. And this is something to praise the Lord for. Paul praises God for this, but it also became something else. Above and beyond the gift of salvation that they had received, they were given gifts of speech and knowledge which confirmed the testimony of the gospel. This church received so many gifts that Paul could say that they were not lacking a single spiritual gift. Christ is the one who sustained them to the end but gifted them for the purpose of that sustaining. And lastly, this, this grace of the Lord that had been given to them was the reason for his thanks it will cause them to be guiltless in the day of Christ, that future glorification, that cause to have them be guiltless in the day of Christ. Verse 7, so that you are not lacking in any gift, eagerly awaiting the revelation of our Lord Jesus Christ, who will also confirm you to the end, beyond a reproach, 
in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. So he's thanking God for God's grace at work in their lives. That grace has had past impact on their life, that is having present impact on their life, and it will sustain them for the future. He's praising God for God's grace toward them. And then there's just this one little, one little line in verse 9 that might seem semi-disconnected, but it's tremendously helpful, even as a kind of a guiding point for this whole letter. Verse 9, God is faithful through whom you were called into fellowship with his son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. Paul is, I can't imagine how Paul was getting ready to write this letter and just thinking, where do I start? Like, the, the sorts of things that we're going to be seeing that this church was celebrating, I got to imagine he was at a loss. So he starts with praising God for what he can praise God for and recognizing God's faithfulness. Verse 9 would have been certainly a hope for the Corinthian church, but it's also a hope for Paul because it's say, I don't know the solution to fix all these challenges in this church, but I know God is faithful. If he called them into fellowship, he's able to present them holy in the end. This is a foundational truth, the faithfulness of God. Almost as, a, as an aside, he just drops this bomb into his greeting. He simply reminds the Corinthians of God's faithfulness. And even as he prepares to correct various issues within the church, he's careful to anchor his hope for their actually being able to change, actually being able to live a holy life. He anchors this hope in the faithfulness of God. He doesn't just amp them up with like, ah, oh, you're just such a great church. You could be like this. You could be like this. You could do this. No, the hope is in the faithfulness of God to reproduce Christ's character in them. So God's faithfulness has drawn them into fellowship with Christ, and God's faithfulness would produce in them the character needed for such fellowship. It was God's character that brought them into fellowship with Christ in the first place. It's going to be God's faithfulness that produces the character required for that fellowship in the long term. And then, verse 10 is where he starts into making the urgent plea. But before we do that, I want to just pause and ask if there's any questions or the lingering thoughts that you're thinking through pertaining to verse 4 through 9 or anything from last time we talked uh, through this two weeks ago. Any questions, comments at this point? I'm going to take that as a no. Quiet group this morning. Chapter 1, verse 10, picks up with an urgent plea for unity. An urgent plea for unity. And first he gives the reason for the appeal, the problem that's underlying what's going on here. There's quarreling, there's contention, there's infighting within the church, and there's factions that had developed within the Corinthian church. Factions developing around people and teachers rather than unity around Jesus Christ and God's word. But I want to note the tone of this appeal. Look at verse 10. Now I exhort you, brothers, I, I plea with you, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you all agree and that there be no division among you. Paul responds to the error, not first with a command, not with a command, but with an appeal, an exhortation. Remember, there are a chunk of a of people within this church. that we'll, we'll get to it more as we talk about Paul defends what true apostleship is. 
But there's a chunk of people within this church that are denying Paul's authority as an apostle. And then there's another chunk that are loyally devoted to him. So how is he going to approach this tricky situation? Like if, you, if you're getting ready to address a bunch of people, half the group totally rejects any authority that you have. The other group is basically a bunch of fanboys. How are you going to bring something that's not going to further polarize that group? How are you going to even go about correcting that? He does so with an appeal. Because if he'd started right out the gate with a command, I think that would have just further driven those parties apart because some people would listen, some people wouldn't. But he urgently entreats and requests. Paul's overall approach to correcting the church in Corinth was this pattern. I want to highlight something that I found tremendously interesting. Throughout the whole letter of 1 Corinthians, 16 chapters, there are 100 imperative verbs. 100 imperative verbs. Those are command verbs, the do something verbs, the verbs that you can't just hear and say, neat, that's an interesting fact. No, it's a, it, it's a verb that demands a response. There's a hundred of those in 1 Corinthians, which tells you how corrective and how instructive this letter is. But in the first six chapters, there's only 13. So that gives you a little bit of an indication as to the ratio. But in the first two chapters, only one command. And this command is in 1 Corinthians 1.30. The command is a direct quote from the Old Testament. I think that's really cool. This is a key verse for understanding Paul's approach to correcting the Corinthian church. When we get to that, because we realize that he has a lot that he could say, he has a lot that he needs to correct, and he has a bunch of people that are rejecting his own authority. So how is he going to bring about communicating the biblical need for change in response to this letter. He's going to do it by quoting scripture and laying a significant amount of groundwork before he just jumps in and starts saying, do this, don't do this, stop doing this. We'll get to that in the second half of this letter. But he starts with that one command quoting scripture. The content of the appeal in verse 10 is essentially agreement, resolve the divisions, and have unity of mind and judgment. And in verse 13 through 17, he explains the basis for this appeal. Why is he making this appeal? Why is he saying, you guys all need to, to stop this mindset of I follow so-and-so and I follow so-and-so? The basis for this appeal are all connected to the gospel. Three gospel-related motivations for unity. And these are very timeless principles, so I hope you'll see the immediate relevance to our own day. In verse 13, he asks a couple questions. Has Christ been divided? This is a Christological question, a question dealing with the very nature of Christ. Has Christ been divided? He's getting rather theological in this correction. Was Paul crucified for you? Again, this is relating to the doctrine of salvation. Or were you baptized into the name of Paul, relating to the ordinance of baptism? So these three gospel-related motivations for unity are the answers to these questions, which are no. First, Christ is not divided. Christ is not divided. Following a person rather than following Christ in his word ultimately communicates to the world that Christ himself is divided. That's what disunity communicates. It communicates that Christ is divided. And Christ is not divided. Second, Christ died for our sins. Christ died for our sins. Following a prominent figure 
makes him out to be the Savior rather than Christ. Christ died for our sins. And lastly, we were baptized into the name of Christ. We were baptized into the name of Christ. The divided believers were living and acting as though they had been baptized into the name of their favorite teacher. That's the label they were wearing. I'm, a, I'm an Apollos guy. Oh, I'm a Cephas guy. What about you're a Christian, a Christ guy? Some implications for us today. Nobody in Corinth was literally claiming that Christ was divided. They weren't saying, oh yeah, Christ is two different persons or I follow this version of Christ and I follow this version of Christ. They weren't literally claiming that. They were not actually claiming that Paul died for their sins. They were not really saying that they'd been baptized into the name of their favorite speakers. But their quarreling and actions were revealing that they had failed to apply some very important elements of the gospel. These foundational gospel truths, they'd missed it in their application and in their life. And just by way of exhortation and encouragement for us today, if you are tempted to be at odds with another believer, it would be worth asking, how might this dispute communicate to the world that Christ is divided? Or would this dispute communicate that Christ is divided? How would resolution between this brother or sister proclaim the unifying power of the gospel? If you are prone to following a particular personality or Christian figure, currently living or deceased, I'm a so-and-so blank, where it's someone else's name other than Christ that you're identifying with, or someone presence is like, oh yeah, I just listened to so-and-so's sermons, that's all I listen to. If you're prone to following a particular personality or Christian figure, does my allegiance to this reformer, this teacher, this pastor, this writer, does my allegiance to them communicate to the world that Christ had a secondary role in my salvation? Does it communicate that, oh yeah, yeah, Christ did die on the cross, but really, who really opened my eyes to the truth was blank. Paul didn't die for the sins of the Corinthians. Paul played a secondary at best role in their salvation. But when we label ourselves by this person or that person, we implicitly say Christ had a secondary role in my salvation. And then if you're struggling to reach unity of mind or to be of the same judgment in a relationship with another believer, consider asking, how would contemplating our baptism into Christ produce in my own heart a felt sense of the fundamental and deep unity that I have with this person? How might that adjust the perspective on the quarrel I am experiencing? I think these questions are helpful ones to return to perhaps regularly with any conflict you might experience with another believer. And we do experience conflicts with other believers. And ultimately, it's going to be the gospel that produces that reconciliation, produces that unity, and produces that sameness of mind. Questions or thoughts on these implications and how they play out practically? Or additional comments? Yeah.
Yeah, that's an interesting question. So for you guys, it's essentially, if I'm understanding correctly, basically, like, how does this play out when it's more preferential related to someone's teaching style than, yeah. I think this is, that's different than what Paul is talking about here because Paul is very much like, these people are saying, I follow so-and-so. So it'd be the, like the difference between like, oh, I, I'm walking into the church service and I see the bulletin like, oh, it's, it's Dan Johnson preaching. I'm going to get in my car and leave. Like that, that's the idea of like what would what happen. And I say that because Dan shared the story of someone that came up to him after the service and said, I saw that you were preaching and I went out to my car and the spirit convicted me and I came back in and listened to it. And that's exactly what I needed to hear. So I'm not commending that approach at all, but that does happen. I don't think that's exactly what, Paul's not talking about the preferential. He's talking about the, I, I, I don't, I don't follow him. I'm like, I'm not attached to him in a, it's like a little cults within the church kind of mindset. Good question. That happens too, where some, yeah, pastor, pastor leaves and people literally, physically, geographically follow them to another place. Um, I mean, it definitely miscommunicates, to say the least. It, it kind of fundamentally misunderstands what a church is as a body of believers, as a family of believers. Um, so I think that it miscommunicates, to say the least. Um, but I guess it, there's nothing inherently wrong with, all right, I'm going to, I'm going to keep being shepherded by this individual. I think the difference is they're saying one thing, they're saying one thing, and I believe there's a difference between what's being said. And I'm like, it's, I, yeah, I'm truly following this person, like this person's ideas, the way he says it, the, the, the ideas that he's proclaiming. Because it's in the context of Corinth, what the church in Corinth is doing is basically doing what everyone else in Greek culture was doing in that day, where I follow Socrates, I follow Plato, I, I'm, I'm in this school of philosophical thought. Oh, I'm in this school of philosophical thought. So it wasn't just like a, oh, I prefer Plato's teaching over Socrates' teaching. It was, no, I'm in this camp. So I think it's going from one church to another because you've greatly appreciated the ministry of someone isn't necessarily saying I'm in his camp, but that person would definitely have to check their heart and say, Am I doing that because I just want to be around this guy, or is it I've just been blessed by this man's ministry? The other man's ministry is a faithful ministry too, and I'm praising the Lord for his ministry, but um, I'm just going to be shepherded by this individual. So I think there's a nuance of difference there, but do you have any additional thoughts, Russ? So it's doctrinal versus personal? Yes, I think so. Yeah. Isaac?
Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think another thing too is like when you're talking about healthy doctrinal questions and that sort of thing, like we're not talking about anyone that broadly says they're a Christian, you should listen to them. Like that's not what's being said, because otherwise it might imply that Christ is divided, because he says he's a Christian, so I should listen to him. So we are dealing with what's objectively true, like scriptures, scriptures the authority, and we can we can deal with, all right. I have a question on how that man interprets this text, and I disagree with that. That's different than saying, oh, I follow this guy because I like him. That's, that's worlds of difference between what he's saying lines up with the truth, what he's saying doesn't line up with the truth. Those are two very different things than, I like this guy, I don't like this guy. Does that make sense? Sort of like, there should be that. I mean, like Acts 17.11, right? The Bereans were more noble because they examined the scriptures, and they questioned what was being said. That's a that's a good thing, that's a commended thing, and they didn't respond with the, oh yeah, I like the way Paul preaches, I'll follow him. So it's, it is getting to the content, and that's what Paul is saying, it's like, what should erode this division between the, the Apollos guys and the Cephas guys and the Paul guys, what should just break that down is a continuity of content, which is Christ crucified is the message being proclaimed. The content is the same, therefore there should be unity. Christ isn't divided. Now, as soon as you have someone that's saying something that's a Christological heresy, something that is untrue about Christ, then you would say, okay, yeah, quote unquote, Christ is divided because that guy isn't teaching a true Christ. That's a false Christ. So we don't follow him because we don't follow the content of what he's saying. Does that make sense? Okay. Really good question. Anything else? Anthony. As far as that goes, and, and Paul addresses it later, I think it's chapter four. Yeah, chapter four, First Corinthians chapter four. Let a man, so basically, like, same question, right? So like, person reading First Corinthians is saying, well, but, but Paul, I just, I benefited so much from your teaching. It was so helpful. How, how come you're saying I can't follow you? How, how am I supposed to think of you if I'm, if I'm not gonna be your fanboy? Verse one of chapter four. Let a man consider us in this manner as servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. In this case, moreover, it is required of stewards that one be found faithful. So, and we'll we'll dive into that more when we get to it. But basically, how should we regard those pastors, those teachers, those conference speakers that have been such a help to us? Servants of Christ. They're just stewards. They're just the ones helping bring the truth to us. They're, They're a huge benefit, a huge help, but they're just servants. They're not, they're not to be put on that pedestal of like, yeah, I mean, like there's Christ and then there's like John Piper or David Platt, Kevin DeYoung or whatever it might be. That's not, there's, there's stewards, they're, they're there to, to serve. Does that make sense? Great question. All right, we're gonna hop, skip, jump along to verse seven, which is teeing us up to flow very nicely. 
into the next verse. For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to proclaim the gospel, not in wisdom or word, so that the cross of Christ will not be made empty. So Paul's resolve was to preach the gospel clearly, to preach it simply. He was resolved to preach without rhetorical manipulation and sophisticated techniques. He was resolved to preach without obscuring the power of the cross by clothing it in secular garb. He wasn't coming with the newest philosophical idea that was going to just totally win everyone over to this new well-worded presentation. No, he was bringing the message of the gospel. That was Paul's commitment when he came to Corinth. He was committed to the proclamation of the gospel and the teaching of the church. And amidst all the confusion within the church caused by his absence, this letter reveals that he has the same commitments now as he's writing the letter as he did then when he was there present with them. He's not bringing some sort of trickery, some sort of argument that's just going to win everyone over. He's just bringing the truth. He's clearly not out to win friends and gain a following, but rather he's seeking to put forth the truth in a plain and a clear and a direct manner, which is refreshing. So kind of concluding this section of 1 Corinthians, the opening verses of this book highlight that Corinth had issues. We just see a glimpse of that with their division. It gets way worse. It was a church family filled with internal strife, and through Paul's own thorough response to the various issues in the church body, we're given a treasure trove of application. And then as we think about digging into this book over the coming months, um, we're going to just see more and more of the way that he approaches these corrections. So we won't do preparing for next week because we're already in next week. All right, now we are into 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 18. I have some more handouts. Matt, could you help me hand those out? And as we're doing that, any other thoughts on this section of what we've just covered. Anthony, could you help with this side? Questions on the first half of chapter one. Other things to talk about, think through together. Really good questions earlier. Mm-hmm. Focus on where there's unity. Yeah. Right? So he was like, forget about all this other stuff. Look at Jesus. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Imagine how different this letter would have been if rather than in resolving the dispute, focusing on the unity in Christ, he'd just kind of come out guns blazing with defending his own ministry. Being like, well, I did this, and I did this, and I had, I had this many shipwrecks, and I was, this was, I faced this, and I did this, and all, I, 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 me, me, me. That's not, not the biblical template at all. So, yeah, great. Other comments or highlights? All right. Let's jump in to chapter 1, verse 18 through 31. I'll pick up in verse 17 just because it flows in so nicely. So he's saying, I didn't baptize people. I, that's not the main thing I was there for. Okay, yeah, sure, I baptized a couple. But the main thing I was there to do was preach Christ. For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to proclaim the gospel, not in word of wisdom, so that the cross of Christ will not be made empty. For the word of, of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, 
It is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and the cleverness of the clever I will set aside. Where is the wise man? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom did not come to know God. God was well pleased through the foolishness of the message preached to save those who believe. For indeed, Jews ask for signs and Greeks search for wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified to Jews, a stumbling block, and to Gentiles, foolishness. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. Because the foolishness of God is wiser than men and the weakness of God is stronger than men. For consider your calling, brothers, that there were not many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble, but God has chosen the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. And God has chosen the weak things of the world to shame the things which are strong. And the base things of the world and the despised, God has chosen the things that are not so that he may abolish the things that are, so that no flesh may boast before God. But by his doing, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God and righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that just as it is written, let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. Wow. So the problem in Corinth. Kind of, he's getting further and further to the root of the issue with this disunity. The problem, and our problem, is not that we don't love ourselves enough. It's not that we think too lowly of ourselves. It's not that we fail to realize how just, just how spectacular we are. Oh, to the contrary. We love ourselves too much we think too lowly of God and too highly of ourselves, and we fail to realize just how spectacular our Savior is. At the core, the sin in Corinth and an issue at play in all of our hearts was spiritual pride. Spiritual pride. The symptoms of this pride, spiritual pride, among countless other rotten fruits that this pride produces, had produced in Corinth division. Division and plenty of other issues, but one of the key symptoms that Paul addresses right off the bat is division. And the solution, as we've already seen in the previous uh, section that we just talked about, the solution is the gospel. This is God's solution to disunity. So from this section, I see, and I believe we'll see together, Five confrontations to the sin of pride. Five confrontations to the sin of pride in verses 18 through 31. The first is the simplicity of the gospel. The simplicity or the the foolishness is the way that it was worded then, but the simplicity of the gospel, verses 18 through 21. The word of the cross, the gospel. It is a divisive message. Interestingly, in the midst of talking about disunity, look at what Paul points to in verse 18 he immediately talks about how polarizing the message is. The word of the cross, this message that I came preaching, it's foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it's the power of God. 
immediately. That's the opposite of a unifying message. It does the opposite of bring everyone together. It separates. It's foolishness to the perishing, but it's God's power to those being saved. The gospel, this is for you, for everyone, the gospel is either folly or it is salvation to you. There is no in-between response. The divisiveness of the message, however, brings unity within the church. The divisiveness of the message in, a, in an external sense, in that it separates those saved from those unsaved, brings unity within the church because our response to the gospel brings us into fellowship with other people who are savingly responsive to the good news. And this is God's plan to destroy and confound the wisdom of man. He references Isaiah 29, verse 14, but looking at the context is helpful for seeing this, this whole flow of thought. When, just as an aside here, when, when New Testament writers reference Old Testament passages, they do so with a very good understanding of those passages. And it's really wise, especially when there's a direct quote from Scripture, to go back in the Old Testament and look at the context. Because usually, the author is taking into account that context when he pulls just a tiny fragment. So Isaiah 29, 13 through 16. Then the Lord said, Because this people draw near with their mouth and honor me with their lips, but they remove their hearts far from me, and their fear of me is in the command of men learned by rote. Therefore, behold, I will once again deal marvelously with this people, wondrously marvelous. And the wisdom of their wise men will perish, and the discernment of their discerning men will be hidden. Woe to those who deeply hide their counsel from Yahweh, and whose deeds are done in a dark place. And they say, who sees us, and who knows us? You turn things around. Shall the potter be considered as equal with the clay? And what is made would say to its maker, He did not make me. Or what is formed say to him who formed it, He has no understanding. The wisdom of the wise men will perish. The discernment of their discerning men will be hidden. The cross, the message of the gospel, is a confounding mystery to the intellectual elite of every age. Human wisdom is not sufficient to come to a right and saving knowledge of God. There's no amount of philosophical proofs that you can perfectly align to just, by your own cleverness, come up with, ah, I rightly know God as I should. No, it's God humbly coming down as we see most clearly in the cross. Human wisdom is not sufficient to come to a right and saving knowledge of God. Apart from the message of the gospel, people do not figure out God. Verse 21, back in 1 Corinthians. Verse 21, for since in the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom did not come to know God. God was pleased through the foolishness of the message preached to save those who believe. God's wisdom is displayed by his plan to save people through a simple, that is simple from the world's perspective, foolish, foolish from the world's perspective, and despised message. That's what God uses to save people, to show off his own power. So that's the first confrontation to our pride is the simplicity of the gospel message. The second confrontation to our pride is our natural response to the cross. Our natural response to the cross is humbling. Verse 23 and 20, 22 and 23. For indeed, Jews ask for signs and Greeks search for wisdom. Jews, God's 
Old Testament, Old Covenant, Abrahamic Covenant, Mosaic Covenant people, people chosen by God. That's Jews. Greeks, Gentiles, that's all non-Jews. So what we're talking about in verse 22, Jews and Greeks, Jews and Gentiles, that is everyone. Everyone falls into either one of those categories. Every human being on earth. 22. Jews ask for signs. Greek search, Greeks search for wisdom. Many people are looking for some other way to know God than faith. Something other than faith in the crucified and risen Lord Jesus Christ. Someone proofs. Someone, I just want to see it. If I could see it, I'd believe it. Someone those signs. Others want an airtight philosophical and logical argumentation. They want wisdom. But our natural response for anyone, Jew or Greek, is to want something other than faith in Jesus Christ who came, lived, died for our sins, and rose again. That's what Jews and Greeks are seeking. That's what every human being is seeking. Jews ask for signs. Greeks search for wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified. The message was the same. The message was the same. The Messiah, the Savior, the anointed one was crucified for the sins of all who would repent and put their faith in Jesus Christ for salvation. The message didn't change. Paul didn't say, well, okay, Jews are seeking signs, so I'm going to make sure I say it this way with Jews, and Gentiles are seeking wisdom, so I'm going to make sure it just sounds really smart to them. No, he gave a simple message, proclaimed it. But then there's the two natural responses to the gospel. The two natural responses to the gospel, that message of Christ crucified. Verse 23, we preach Christ crucified to Jews a stumbling block and to Gentiles foolishness. Yikes. That's everyone, right? Jews, non-Jews, everyone. The message of the cross is either a stumbling block or folly. Boy, Paul, are you sure you want to bring that message? The message that everyone innately rejects? The stumbling block for Jews. How could the Messiah be killed? I can't get over that. I can't get past this. I stumble on it every time. Interestingly, the sign that the Jews received was their own rejection and unresponsiveness to the Messiah. Matthew 12, 38 through 41. I won't read it all. It's there for you. But when they came to Jesus asking for a sign, he says, all right, I'll give you a sign. The only sign you're going to get is the sign of Jonah. Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days, three nights, so will the Son of Man be. And Nineveh responded to Jonah. The Israelite people, the Jewish people, didn't respond to Jesus. They crucified him. The message he brought was rejected. The second stumbling block to Jews, folly to the Gentiles. Why would we worship and follow a God who died? That is foolish. We have plenty of other more powerful gods than that. The cross was far from the logical proof and sophisticated message that the Greek mind expected to hear as the latest and greatest idea. This was not set to be a bestseller, Paul. Why would you bring this message? Jews and Gentiles, this is all humanity. Paul is saying that everyone, everyone naturally rejects the message of the cross. But the third confrontation to our pride, verse 24, is our reception of the message of Christ. Our reception, our receiving it. The Spirit-enabled response to the gospel is faith. That's 
the Spirit-enabled response. Receiving the gospel as the power and wisdom of God rather than as folly is an indication of God's grace and mercy. Verse 24, to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks. So he's just made a category of everyone, Jews and Greeks, all humanity, and then from that group he says, ah, but, but, to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, that's who we're preaching, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. So what makes the difference? Jew, Greek, that means everybody. So why is there even a third category? This third category are those called by God, both out of the Jewish people and those who are Gentiles, that is non-Jews. So what does it mean to be called? There are two types of calling in the Bible, and we'll just touch on this briefly. The general call and the effectual call. You look through and see the way this word's used, you can see two general categories that are being talked about. One is the general call. This is the proclamation of the gospel and invitation to respond. It can be and often is rejected and dismissed. This general call is the call you have all received at one point or another when you heard the gospel and someone invited you to respond. That's the general call. But, Matthew twenty-two fourteen says, for many are called, but few are chosen. Many are gonna hear this message, few are gonna respond. That's the general call, but what about the effectual call? What is the call that makes the difference? Because there's many Jews, many Gentiles that heard this message, received the general call. What differs them is the effectual call, the supernatural and gracious act of God, whereby he draws a sinner to himself. It results in repentance, faith, new life, and new desires, and is not resisted by the sinner, because the call frees the will to joyfully respond in faith. A couple of verses that highlight this. This just becomes a label for Christians throughout the New Testament. Romans 1, 6, among whom you also are the called of Jesus Christ. Romans 8, 28, we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purposes. Romans eleven twenty nine. for the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. It doesn't go backwards. It doesn't reverse. Jude 1, Jude, a slave of Jesus Christ and brother of James to those who are the called, beloved in God the Father and kept for Jesus Christ. 2 Timothy 1, 9, who has saved us and called us with a holy calling, not according to our works, but according to his own purpose and grace, which was given to us in Christ Jesus from all eternity. John 6, 44, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. And then Revelation 17, 14, these will wage war against the Lamb, and the Lamb will overcome them, because he is the Lord of lords and King of kings, and those who are with him are the called and elect and faithful. That confronts our pride. Fourthly, fourth confrontation to our pride is the selection of God. The selection of God, verse 26 through 29. Paul appeals to the Corinthians' awareness of their own conversion when they were called. Look at verse 26. For considering your calling, looking at your call, see your call, look at this. They knew their condition when they were called. They were not the best of the best by worldly standards. And just a note here, when we read the words uh, in verse 27 and 28, God chose, chosen, 
That is the same root word as the noun called in the previous verses. Just, I have that note there on your side there, just to realize that that's chosen and called are the same uh, terminology here. The concept of God's effectual calling is directly related to his electing and choosing. So what does God choose? And this is what's so humbling when you think about what God chooses. Verse 27 through 28. What has God chosen? God has chosen the foolish things of the world to shame the, th- the wise. God has chosen the weak things of the world to shame the things which are strong. The base things of the world, the despised, the things that are not. Some claim that the Bible's teaching on election sounds prideful. They claim that the idea that God chooses who he will save is arrogant. But the conclusion from rightly grasping this teaching is the opposite. Consider your calling. Think about your calling. Think about your salvation. What did you bring to the table? I'm this. I'm the description in 27 through 28. We didn't bring anything to the table. It's humbling. In verse 19, Paul references Isaiah 29. But then later, this, this concept of who chose and, and what, what can, does God have the right to do this? Is, is this really okay? Just uh, reading there so you have the blank. When biblical writers reference scripture, they do so very intentionally and they know the context of the verses they quote. They know the context of the verses they quote. And Isaiah 29, 16, which is immediately following Isaiah 29, 14, essentially asks this same question rhetorically. God goes on to clarify the right that the potter has over the clay in verse 16. You turn things around. Shall the potter be considered as equal with the clay? that what is made would say to its maker, he did not make me, or what is formed say to who formed it, he has no understanding. Is it really right for us as creatures to come before God and be like, ah, why'd you make me this way? Why am, I, why am I this way? You have no right to do that. He's the creator, he has absolute right, absolute freedom. So why, why did God do this? Why did God choose what's foolish, what's weak, what's despised, what's debased, Why did God choose these foolish things, these weak methods and people to accomplish his purposes? Seems like he could have done it a different way. Of course he could have. But he chose to do this to display his wisdom, to display his wisdom and shame earthly wisdom. He chose to use the weak things to display his strength and shame earthly strength and to obliterate human boasting. To obliterate human boasting. And we come to our last confrontation to our pride. In verse 30, our being in Christ. Our being in Christ. Why are you saved? Why are you in Christ? Have you ever stopped to ask that question? Look at verse 30. But by his doing, that's a reference to God immediately above so that no flesh may boast before God. By his doing, you're in Christ Jesus. It is by God's doing. It is from God that we are in Christ. Christ became significant to us. Christ became significant to us. Look at verse 30. By his doing, you're in Christ, who became to us these things. We were not born embracing him as our savior. We were born rebels. We were born resistant but God causes him to be for us wisdom. Though once 
apparent folly and confusion for the believer, Jesus Christ becomes the very definition and reference point for all wisdom. He becomes for us righteousness. We, where we once trusted in our own effort and our own work to sufficiently assure our own salvation, we now trust in the righteousness of Christ. He's become our sanctification. Well, we used to think that we could produce, somehow we could produce some sort of lasting change in our hearts and that in and of ourselves we would become worthy of Christ. To the contrary, we now see that only Christ can produce in us through the power of his Holy Spirit the necessary holiness for a life that pleases God. And lastly, Christ has become for us redemption. While we were dead and enslaved to sin, unable to pay the penalty for our sins, Christ stepped in and paid the penalty for our sins by his death on the cross and became for us the only hope of our liberation from bondage to sin. So what's the conclusion to all this? Paul's just pretty much flattened any human pride. So what does he say? Verse 31, the conclusion, boast in your relationship with Yahweh. Boast in your relationship with the Lord. The Christian life should be a life of joyful boasting. You were saved by the grace of God, and now we know and love the God of the universe. Do you brag about that? Like, do you boast in the fact that you know God? It's something to be boasted in, something to be proclaimed. The message of the cross, though folly to the world, to the world has become a sweet and wonderful message to us. This is the message we bring to others with faith and hope that God uses our proclamation. God uses our joyful boasting in the message of the cross to produce heart change in others. He uses that to draw others to himself. He uses our faithful boasting. Jeremiah 9, 23 through 24. Thus says the Lord, thus says Yahweh, let not the wise man boast in his wisdom. Let not the mighty man boast in his might. Let not the rich man boast in his riches, but let him who boasts boast in this, that he understands and knows me, that I am Yahweh, who shows loving kindness, justice, and righteousness on earth, for I delight in these things, declares Yahweh. God has authored salvation such that human wisdom, physical might, and financial wealth play no decisive role in someone's relationship with him. All the glory for our salvation is ascribed to God and God alone, which means all our worship, all our honor, all our glory, all of our boasting is directed towards him and none is reserved for ourselves. The gospel is such that we cannot pat ourselves on the back for any contribution we make to our salvation. We are left in the posture of utter worship and joy with the boast that we know Christ and we have salvation in his name. This is the message Paul starts with in the highly corrective letter to the Corinthians. Because unbiblical disunity suffocates in the air of humility. With this mindset, this mindset that my only boast, the only thing that I can say is that I know and love the Lord and I boast and rejoice in that. That message suffocates pride. Fill a church with humble sinners saved by amazing grace and in awe of their own salvation, having accounted for their own unworthiness and you will find a shiningly unified body of believers. So let's do that. Let's go forth boasting in the relationship we have the Lord with the Lord, boasting in the only thing that a Christian can boast in, knowing God. The last verse of Stuart Townend's How Deep the Father's Love for Us goes, I will not boast in anything, no gifts, 
no power, no wisdom, but I will boast in Jesus Christ, his death and resurrection. Why should I gain from his reward? I cannot give an answer, but this I know with all my heart, his wounds have paid my ransom. What a glorious hope. Let me close this in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for the privilege it is to be able to spend this time together and to be able to do so as sons and daughters adopted into your family. Lord, we do make this our boast, that you know us and that we know you. It's a mystery of your grace that we would be able to say that, we would be able to claim that, to be able to claim to have a right relationship with you, and we do that only on the basis of what Christ has done for us. We recognize that this humbles and lays low our pride, and we thank you for that. We ask that you would produce in us and maintain in us a steady and ongoing posture of humility, and that that would have a transformative effect on so many facets of our lives. Again, Lord, we thank you. We ask that you would continue to apply these truths into our hearts, even into the afternoon. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Thank you all so much. I realize there might be some questions, so please stick around. I'd love to ask them or answer them. And then one other thing, for two weeks from now, homework, air quote, you see that at the very bottom, preparing for next week, there's three points. It might be on your fourth page, actually. Just uh, read through chapter two, and then there's two questions that I would love for you guys to chew on ahead of time, and we'll be able to have some discussion about it right off the gate. So just uh, think about that for two weeks from now. And then next week, Russ will be teaching. So thank you all so much for your time. Have a great rest of your Sunday afternoon.